Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. You know, uh, the, the reading yesterday for Palm Sunday where Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Like, there's, there's something I'm feeling right now. Like, I don't ever, I don't know, I don't ever get nervous. And I'm not nervous. Um, like, the bigger the crowd, the more excited I get to preach and to teach. That's honestly the truth. Like, just put me at World Youth Day. I'll be the happiest man ever. Um, but, like, like, my heart's, like, beating right now. Because, like, there's, there's so much in my heart. Um, that I, I want to share with you guys today. And I'm, I'm grateful for Megan and Brad for giving me 75 minutes. That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I'm grateful that you guys are such a, I mean, I've shared, with this, shared this to this community before, but there's, not, there's just not a better place to preach uh, than the Damascus community. Like, to be with you guys is such a gift. Um, a fertile, receptive bride, and it's a, uh, it's a very great gift to be able to be a priest to pour my heart out uh, with you guys this morning. So, um, this image, let's start with this image. Um, Lucy, were you pointing out that that's not a, a human being? Right, anybody know what this is an image of? What's that? Cupid and Psyche. Very good. You know who sculpted it? Bernini. Okay. Cupid and Psyche by Gian Lorenzo Bernini. We're going to look at another Bernini piece in this uh, talk today, too. Cupid is the Roman god of? Love. Who is the Greek correspondent to the Roman god Cupid? Oh, Aphrodite's? Nope. Eros. Eros. Who said Eros? Who said Eros? Eros. Eros. It's where we get the word erotic. Let's just, at the very outset, let's just not confuse erotic with porneia, right? Porneia is the destructive self-turn of eros towards the self. It's, eros is the outward-reaching impulse for all that is true, good, and beautiful. It's, I want the endless fulfillment of my heart's desire. Eros is what pushes us out. Eros is what Augustine was feeling when he was saying, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, Lord. Our eros is... It's, it's what I'm feeling right now in springtime as like the daffodils start to come up, as like the buds are coming up on the trees. It's this, this longing, this ache, this piercing. Like I want endless beauty, right? I want endless beauty. This is an image of Eros seducing, wooing, approaching humanity, right? This is, I mean, if there's anything that uh, you get out of my talk today, Pope Benedict said that there is in God's heart for man... Eros, that he has this passion, this yearning for you, this unbelievable, like he's not just like, amuse me, like entertain me, earn your way up. There is in God's heart this descending, like seduction. Mm. Whew. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, in the gospel today, uh, we see Mary of Bethany breaking a jar of nard over your body. There's only one other place in the Bible where nard is mentioned. It's the Song of Songs. Nard is the fragrance of the bride's openness to the bridegroom. Jesus, we break open our hearts before you this afternoon. May we be fertile, receptive, open places where your gift can be poured in in super lavish abundance. Help us contemplate through the intercession of St. John Paul II, the apostle of the human person and the witness of hope help us to contemplate with him the beauty of the human person male and female the great mystery 
and we place ourselves this whole afternoon, this whole retreat, this talk, Jesus, my poverty, use it as a channel of your riches, my brokenness as a channel of your wholeness. Use me, Lord, to, to, to preach your word. We place this in Mary's womb. We place ourselves in Mary's womb where all good things are brought to birth, where we are most safe and most loved. As we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul the Great. Pray for us. Our Lady Guadalupe. Pray for us. St. Joseph. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's start with, uh, will we have audio? I want to start with this video of this kid. Maybe a lot of you, I'm sure, have seen these videos of people on YouTube. They got really popular in the last couple of years. People who've been colorblind, they get those like in chroma glasses for the first time. They're seeing color for the first time. I think I've watched all of them on YouTube because they just destroy me. This one is so great. This kid's my hero. I want to meet him one day, but let's just watch this. Wait, are, are these my color? Oh, no. oh, no. This is red. Oh, my area I, yeah guys I I mean you witness this probably more than most people but most Christians most of the kids who come here most Catholics are colorblind when it comes to the faith we do not see reality I mean this was what Jesus identified this was the fundamental problem with humanity they look but they do not see right this is what he says there's a problem you can't read the gospels and and not conclude that Jesus is interested in correcting our vision the way we see reality right we don't see reality properly we don't see ourselves properly we don't see our humanity properly our masculinity our femininity we just don't see properly which is why in john's gospel jesus's invitation it's not come and see the literal translation is come and become one who sees that's what he says come and become one who sees it's an invitation to shift just to shift the analogy ever so slightly i think most people most cradle catholics experience of their faith is like um who, who has seen like in recent years those like new 3d movies where you got like the cool like 3d glasses right i think most catholics experience of the faith is like going to see a 3d movie without the 3d glasses on right like it's like it's you you see parts of it there's parts that are fuzzy parts that don't make sense right like i just like, yeah, I get that part. I just, it just, I don't, I don't get it. Wow. But then you've got other people. You've got like crazy missionaries at Damascus. You've got crazy priests. You've got crazy saints who like their experience of the faith books looks much more like this, right? 
This is what you guys literally look like to the kids who come to this place, right? In particular, like, yeah, you look that old. Yeah. Like this, the second guy right there, that second guy, is the, he's just like, ah! right? He's, you know. This is, this is you guys going, sacraments, right? This is what's going on, right? Confirmation! Right? And, the ki- and the rest of the kids are like, uh, sacraments? Con- uh, what? Confirmation? What? Right? right? That's exactly what's going on. This is exactly what's going on. Most Catholics just do not see. Most Catholics don't see. Right? I, like, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. So the question is, like, what are these other people seeing? What are, like, like, like what is St. John of the Cross seeing when he, like, when he writes what he writes, or Teresa of Avila, or John Paul II, right? And here's the thing. Like, you guys wouldn't be here if you already didn't have, in some part, these lenses on. Like, that, that you've already grasped, at least in a part of your heart, that this faith is not just simply about behavior modification. It's about an intimate relationship with a... With a value that is absolute, that is claimed and made a total, it's made a total claim on your life, right? You sense there's, there's, you wouldn't be here as a missionary giving your life if you had not encountered that love in some part, in some way, right? The lens is there. What I want to do with you guys this afternoon is I want to take it deeper. I want to take it deeper. I want to like, I mean, again, it's all about the corrective lenses. Like the gospel is telling this insane love story, right? You guys know this. It's the insane love story. The passionate love story between heaven and earth. I, 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 I don't remember where I share these things. But I heard one time uh, from a Franciscan who told me this, this great story about France of Assisi. That Francis one time, shortly after receiving the stigmata, asked the Lord, he said, I want to experience, Lord, as much as possible in my heart, the love which moved thee to leave heaven to become flesh to suffer and die for us. You know what the Lord's response was? He said, you can't handle it. It's like, you can't handle that, Francis. And Francis was like, yo, no, yeah, I can. Like, yeah, like, give, give, give it to me. Just give me, hit, give me a hit, right? Like, let me have a little taste. And the Lord's like, fine, I will send to you the smallest angel from the lowest choir who holds the smallest violin to play one note of the heavenly song, okay? Francis hears it, and he's in a coma for six days. <laughs> this is a story told me... Whether or, not it's, whether or not it's true, I don't know. I, but like, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And like, like if, you, if, you're, if you think that you know, you have no freaking clue. Yeah. You have no clue. You have no clue. This is the love story that's behind all of our love stories, all of our love sonnets and ballads and movies and all of it. Like 1997, I've had 1997 on the mind a lot recently. I just did a funeral the, uh, on Saturday morning for a husband and wife uh, who died in 1997. I know, sounds weird because that's 25 years ago. I just did, is it 24? Listen, y'all are missionaries. None of you are good at math, okay? So, <laughs> so here's the deal. I've had, the, I've had 1997 on my mind a lot recently because I, I met with the daughter of this couple. Let's just focus on the details here. I met with the daughter of this, of this couple, this, this husband and wife, and uh, I was thinking that, like, mom and dad died recently, and, uh, and she goes... You know, I've had their ashes since 1997. And I was like, like, that was the year that Mother Teresa and and Princess Diana died. That was my first response. And I've been thinking, like, what else happened in 97? Like, John Glenn went back to space. Like, holy cow, Titanic was the number one movie in the box office in 1997. Um, There were women. There were teenagers and, like, yeah, women who saw Titanic in the movie theater like 10, 11, 12 times. Why? It wasn't because they were suddenly fascinated with early 20th century maritime history. I'll tell you that. Like, that's not why they saw the movie. They also went seeing it knowing the ending, right? Like, ship's going to sink, right? They saw it because it was, it was a love story. Like, Rose, in the end of that movie, she says, he saved me in every possible way that a person could be saved. 
like it's an echo of the gospel. You guys were talking about this morning, this, these stories that are echoes of the gospel. Like this is the story that's behind all of our love stories. And if we don't understand this as like the, the distillation of the kerygma, then we're missing the good news of the gospel. Like the source and summit, the good news, the nectar of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. The source and summit of the faith is not the confessional. It's the Eucharist. It's the communion. One is preparatory for the embrace with the bridegroom. The only reason you go to confession is to get naked to be embraced by the bridegroom. That's the only reason. You only go, you only go to resume, to bring yourself back into the posture where you can stand before him again, naked without shame. And he says, how lovely you are. My sister, my bride, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. That's the only reason we go. The source and summit of our faith, the good news is not the forgiveness of sins. It's the embrace with eternity. Unbelievable. Like this is from the catechism. The entire Christian life. How much of the Christian life? The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. Everything that we have, everything that we do, everything that we're about, whether it's canonizations or popes, cardinals, liturgies, like catechisms, scriptures, everything that we have, everything that we do is stamped with the DNA of the spousal love, this conspiracy of love between heaven and earth. Everything, the entire Christian life, all of it without remainder. Notice it's not the entire Christian life is about like punishing sinners, rewarding good people who try really hard to be good people, but it's just really hard because they're human after all. Right? Like, no, the entire Christian life is about the spousal love. Like, listen to the, these are quotes from uh, two of our recent popes. Oh, look at that guy. He's still hanging on. Pope, Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict. He's just with his cat, Kiko. That's all. It's just. Yeah, Kiko. That's how I picture his retirement. Pope Benedict said this. He said, The Song of Songs. Who's read the Song of Songs? Good. Okay. The Song of Songs. Song of Songs is in the center of the Bible. You crack your Bible in half. The Song of Songs is in the center. And the center of that center, by the way, is a reading that we had. Well, it's not the reading we had, but the center of the center is a repetition of a word that showed up in the gospel that I prayed at the opening of this talk, the word nard. Who knows what nard is? Nard is a, it's a, it's a aromatic oil. It's a fragrance that's made by crushing flowers that grow on the, the, the slopes of the Himalayas. So it's very rare, very expensive. And here Mary of Bethany takes a liter of nard. Who's got a water bottle that's a liter? Hold it up. Okay. A liter. Who here has ever bought perfume or cologne in a jar that size? Nobody. None of you. You've never bought perfume in a jar that size, right? Perfume and cologne, they're sold by the ounce, right? Clive Christian Original Collection number one. 50 milliliters, $1,000 a bottle. I looked it up this morning. Okay. She takes a liter of nard and pours it on Jesus, which means, what did Jesus smell like through Passion Week? He smelled like the fragrance of the bride. He smelled like the openness of the bride before the bridegroom. He smelled like nard. In the center of the Song of Songs, you hear this double repetition of the word nard, which means that the end of the Old Testament, or the end of the first half of the Bible is nard, and the beginning of the second half of the Bible is nard. Like the center of the center is this fragrance that is the scent of the bride opening her heart to the bridegroom. Pope Benedict says this about the Song of Songs. He says, like, so this book, which, it, which is the only book in the Old Testament that doesn't actually even mention the name of God, by the way. This book that is this erotic celebration of love between bridegroom and bride, the longing, the passion, the, all of this stuff. He says it expresses the essence of biblical faith. Right? Pope Benedict, the German shepherd, right? Very clear, strict in his teaching. He says that book, not, not the parables of Jesus, not like the good shepherd, not vine branches, not Psalm 23, not Isaiah, not even the Gospels, y'all. The Song of Songs expresses the essence of biblical faith, which let's just be honest about that right here. Like, 
if I don't know that, like, if I don't know the Song of Songs, maybe do I, do I know the, do I know biblical faith? The essence, the story of God's passionate longing, His pursuit of humanity, His desire that we would be united to Him forever. John Paul II put it this way. He said, St. Paul's magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery, which is referenced to Ephesians chapter 5, the great mystery appears as the compendium or summa in some sense of the teaching about God and man, which was brought to fulfillment by Christ. He goes on to say this. Oh, wait, we'll go back. Oh, yeah, this is what I want. He says, he says, the mystery spoken of in Ephesians 5 is great indeed. As God's salvific plan for humanity, that mystery is in some sense the central theme of the whole of Revelation. John Paul II, pause. John Paul II is saying that Ephesians 5 is a distillation, a summa, a summary of all of Revelation. It is, as he says, what God wishes above all to transmit to mankind in his word. Ephesians 5 Ephesians 5, which is, I mean, you, you want to know what's most holy. Look what's most profane, what's most attacked, right? I mean, I know this as a preacher. There was one Sunday where I was, Ephesians 5 comes up in the, in the lectionary, the cycle of readings. And I don't know if you guys know this. In the lectionary, sometimes there's like, you can do shorten, you can have the reader proclaim a shortened version of the reading. And Ephesians 5 was up and there's a shortened version of the reading, which excludes the whole husbands love your wives, wives be submissive to your husbands, right? That's the, like, that's the part of the reading where everyone's just like, what the heck, you misogynist, right? Like, like all the claws come out, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right, so I, I preached on this. I preached on this one Sunday in my last parish, and some lady comes up to me after Mass. She's like, she gets right in my face. She's like, you have got to get that out of the Bible. I did not have a very good pastoral response, okay? I just, I just laughed at her. I was like, lady, like that is above my pay grade. Like, it's the Bible. Like, like, like write a letter. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, it was just insane, right? It was insane. It was so insane. All right, so here's the thing, right? First night of the confirmation retreat, what is the message that you communicate to the teens? God wants to? God wants to marry us, which might be a very difficult thing for teens to understand. So, but for you guys, right? Like for us sitting here right now, a better way to maybe say it is God wants a union with us. He wants a friendship with us because that's what marriage is. It's the pinnacle, the high point of friendship. God wants a union with us that the least inadequate image is that of spousal love. Like I picture God like stammering, trying to come up with speech, saying like, what is it that it's like? It's like, like the kind of relationship I want with you is like, I mean, yeah, shepherd sheep, that's fine. Door and gate, that's fine. Um, uh, like husband and wife. Like that's what spousal means. Spousal means total, right? Like a, a relationship which is like everything that is yours is mine. Everything that is mine that is yours. I want to be implicated in everything. I don't want to just simply share minds or time. I want to share everything that I have to share, which is what spouses commit to on the day of the wedding when they stand in front of the altar when they say, I'm giving you everything, which includes my body, which includes my fertility, which includes my future, which includes my past, which includes my bad days and my good days, like includes everything. I hold nothing back. This is what God is saying. Like, this is the kind of image, this is the kind of relationship he wants with us. God wants union with us. Right, because first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. Did some of you not know that? <laughs> Y'all need to get a better childhood. Yeah. <laughs> what playground were you hanging out on? Right. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. Right. This is this is good theology. That is good theology. Right? This is what the Lord wants. Do you know what happened to you at your baptism? You were betrothed to Him. The catechism speaks of baptism as a nuptial mystery because in the ancient world, did you know this? That you, if you're going to get a bath, 
You didn't bathe very often in the ancient world. The custom was that the bride received a bath before her wedding and she was anointed with fragrant perfumes. You know whose job it was to ensure that the bride got bathed? The best man, the shosh beam. Let's rethink what John the Baptist was doing out in the desert. He's preparing the bride for the bridegroom. That's what he's doing. He's washing the bride. Preparing the bride for the coming of the bridegroom. What does John the Baptist say? Like, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist is the best man. John the Baptist is the best man. The Bible begins, like guys, again, like this is not something that John Paul II invented. The Bible begins with this marriage of a man and woman in an earthly paradise. The Bible ends with the marriage of Christ the Lamb in the church in the heavenly paradise. The first human words in scripture are Adam looking at his newly fashioned naked bride Eve and going, whoa, man, which is where we get the word woman from. Um, not sure. <laughs> right, right. Shane's gone. <laughs> no, he looks at her and says, this would at last. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, right? Up to this point, Adam was just like a stupid caveman. He's like, dog, giraffe. And then he sees Eve. But he suddenly becomes Bill freaking Shakespeare, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? That's what happens to the heart of man, by the way, when he meets the love of his life. The last human words in scripture, the last human words, the bride in heaven crying out to the bridegroom, come Lord Jesus, it's the longing for the consummation. And again, smack dab in the center of the Bible, is the Song of Songs. The whole story is this nuptial longing, this nuptial love story. His desire is union and communion. This is what the saints and the mystics teach us. Right? This woman, Teresa of Avila, again, another Bernini statue. The saints and the mystics of our tradition, when they have these powerful experiences of prayer, when they are overwhelmed by God's eros, when they are pierced, right? When they're flooded with glory, they're, when, they're like, when they're looking for language to explain what happened to them, they are not reaching for the imagery. They're not reaching for agrarian parables, okay? They're not like, Teresa's not like, oh my gosh, it was like I was just getting pelted with seeds from like the sower. Uh, or I, know I just really felt like a sheep in the arms of a very strong shepherd. No, no. They are reaching for the song of songs to explain what happened to them. St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Who likes Bernard of Clairvaux? Yeah. Bernard of Clairvaux basically did two things in his life. He founded monasteries, and he wrote commentaries on the Song of Songs. <laughs> and poetry. Only the book that has the most commentaries written on it in the entire canon is not the Gospels. It's not Revelation. It's not Genesis. It's not Isaiah. It's the Song of Songs. More saints and mystics have reflected on the Song of Songs than any other person. This, this scene that he's depicting is a real moment from her life. She, she called it the transverberation. She had this moment in prayer where God's love appeared to her as an angel. Okay, what is just, take the religious context out of it. What does that angel remind you of? What secular holiday? Valentine's uh, Day. Valentine's Day. When we get shot with whose arrow? Cupid. And again, Cupid is the Roman version of who? Arrow. This is Eros. Eros. Coming to Teresa. It says, she says, I was pierced. There was an angel with a flaming dart who pierced my heart over and over again. She said, I was in such agony and such ecstasy simultaneously that I wanted it to cease immediately and last forever. Just, okay, guys, just look, just look at her face. Just, just with reverence, just with great reverence, look at her face. Like that is grace builds on nature. Grace builds on nature. Grace builds on nature. Like that is a woman in the throes of ecstasy. After she died, her heart was exhumed. It was taken out of her body, and there was a cauterized scar in her heart.
This morning you guys reflected on how the life-giving love of the Trinity is etched into our bodies. We bear in our bodies the Imago Trinitatis, an image of the Trinity, right? Yes, give me some of this if that's right. Okay, good. From the Catechism. By sending His only Son and the Spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed His innermost secret. I just love that. Like He spilled the beans. (laughs) You know, think about like... I don't know, when someone tells you like, like a really profound secret, sometimes it's really hard to keep the secret. God's like, I can't keep this to myself. That God has revealed his innermost secret, that God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. Let's just reflect on that and for a second. He is this eternal exchange of life and love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what the heck? He has destined us to share in that exchange. Like the love that dreamt the rings of Saturn into being. The love that created the universe. The love that banged out the Big Bang. The love that holds every atom of existence in being from moment to moment. That love, which is this eternal exchange, this perfect dance, this endless love, that love is saying, we want you to be part of the dance. You know, who's seen the, um, the Prince of Egypt? Oh, <laughs> <yes>. All right. <laughs> There's a song, right? You must learn to join the dance. You must learn to join the dance. What is the Trinity doing for all eternity? They're doing, the church fathers called it perichoresis. This endless dance of love. What do you think this whole life is about? It's about learning to join the dance. Enter into the dance of self-giving love. For those of you who are married in this room, that's what you have a spouse for. To learn to enter into this self-giving love, the dance of, of self-giving love. Alright, so where and how has God revealed this secret? John Paul II, the body has been created to transfer into the visible realm of creation the invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Like the body, the male-female body was created to transpose, if you will, into the earthly, visible, physical key the love song of heaven. You know what the soundtrack of Christianity is? The song of songs, y'all. The song of songs, which was not just text. It's the song of God's heart. What does that song look like? It looks like flesh. It looks like male and female. He created them in our bodies, in our masculinity, in our femininity, in the complementarity. I want to watch this. Uh, we're struggling here. Oh, there we go. Oh, I love this. Just pay attention to what's happening in your heart as you're watching this.
Man, I love that dog so much. <laughs> Guys, the body is not just biological matter. The body is a theological icon. This is what God made our bodies to be. And when we look at our bodies, when we let the body speak, right, phenomenologically, when we let the body speak, it says I am made for another. I am radically incomplete. I am meant to be given away and to be received as a gift. This is what John Paul II refers to as the spousal dimension of the body. That the body has this signature within itself that says, I am a, I'm a gift that's meant to be bestowed. Right? And while not every body will be called to marital union in that sort of self-giving love, every body is still nevertheless called to self-giving love. Everybody is called to that. When John Paul II first started talking about marriage and all of that, it comes up because the Pharisees bring up this whole issue of divorce and remarriage, right? Moses allowed us to write a bill of divorce. What do you say? And he says, in the beginning, it was not so. Let's just contemplate a little real quickly this whole beginning, the beginning that John Paul II brings us back to, right? God makes everything out of nothing. This is a review for all of you. This is a review. He makes everything out of nothing. He says that it is Good. It's good. It's good. It's good. The sky is good. The land is good. The birds are good. The fish is good. The trees are good. Everything's good. The grape jelly and the blue whales. It's all good. Right? It's all, it's all good. And then he makes man, plants him in the garden. Right? And then something's not good. What's not good? Man to be alone. It's not good that he's alone. It's not good that he's alone. All right. So, uh, I want to show you guys an actual picture. I have an actual picture of uh, Adam in the garden. Okay, there he is. The word Adam, by the way, means dirt man. Do you know that? Adama, dirt creature. Huh? Oh, no, it went away. There he is. Wait, where's Adam? Adam, where are you? Adam, 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 Adam. Adam, dirt man. Yeah, Adama, right? Okay, so uh, guys, I don't know if you know this too. So we have an actual photograph of Adam. Um. We have actual audio recording of Adam when he was alone in the garden. I don't know if you know this. In the Vatican, they have actual audio recording. I got a friend who, you know, whatever. I won't go into it. But I got my hands on it, and I just want to play the song that Adam was singing when he was alone in the garden. Just guard your hearts. It's pretty powerful. Shane's gone again. <laughs> this is Adam, guys. <laughs> Can anybody find me? Thank you, Queen. Adam's alone. He's alone. <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right, so God puts Adam into... The, well, first he creates all the animals, all those things. But then he puts Adam into the deep sleep, right? He removes from Adam's side... Let's just take a second to reflect on this. He removes from Adam's side the rib, right? Again, why the side? Because if it was his head, it would have symbolized superiority. If it was his feet, it would have been symbolized inferiority. But the side symbolizes equality and mutuality. But even further than that, I mean, what does the rib do? What's the function of the rib? It's a, it's a cage. It's a protection. 
It protects. Right? It's almost as if God knew that for the man to have a vulnerable heart, he had to almost like put a chink in the armor. And to make his heart vulnerable. Okay, so fashions for the bride, not out of mud, but out of Adam. Something that already contains within itself a higher degree of perfection, right? Because if you look at Genesis, it's creation on the way up. It's getting more and more complex, more and more beautiful. Which is why woman is the crown jewel of creation, y'all. Right? You ladies know this. I hope you know this. Like, you are the most beautiful thing that God made. Amen. Like, sunsets are gorgeous. Like, baby, like, little puppies are gorgeous and beautiful and so cute. Right? Nothing. Nothing compared to, to woman. Nothing compared to woman. If you look, actually, even at, like, the, the fresco in the Sistine Chapel, right? The creation of man. Right? Adam is stretching out his finger. Well, he's more kind of, like, limp like that. But God's like, right? God has his arm. If you look at the cross section, it look, it, Michelangelo did it did purposefully. It, it's like the cross section of a brain. It's an indication of the mind of God. That flowing forth from the mind of God comes man. He's got his arm, his other arm, wrapped around a woman. I should have this in a slide, but I don't. But he's got his arm wrapped around, right there, yeah, okay. Okay. He's got his arm wrapped around a woman, Eve. Okay, so in the creation of Adam, he has Eve in mind. Right? Eve was not created second as an afterthought. Eve was created last. If you ask any artist, right, the last thing of execution was the first thing of intention. She was the crown jewel. Okay, so Adam wakes up. And I don't know if you guys know this, we have an actual audio recording. Stop it. Yeah, an actual audio recording of Adam in the garden the moment that he wakes up to see Eve. You ready for the change? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's Adam. You got to picture this, right? Adam's waking up. He's like, oh, man, my side hurts so much. He's like, My lonely days are over, and life, just wait for it, of songs, right? Oh, mercy. Oh, all right. All right, all right, so good. I'm going to skip this next video because I just, just want to keep going into the deep, deep good stuff. But, all right, who's, I mean, all of you have been to weddings. You're going to go to lots of weddings. When the, yeah. when, the bride, when the bride is walking down the aisle, everyone else in the congregation, what are their heads doing? All right, let's say, let's say groom's over there, bride's walking this way. What is everyone's heads doing? It's like a tennis match. Yep, yep. <laughs> right? What are people, why? Why would, objectively, she's the most beautiful thing coming down the, in the whole space. Why are we looking at the groom? You want to see if he's crying. Here, hang on, hang on. What we want to see is we want to see that moment echoed, recapitulated. Every wedding, John Paul II says, with every marriage, the mystery of redemption is like recapitulated. We want to see Adam gazing upon Eve. That's what we want to see. I want to see that. All right, so humanity, like when God dreamt up the bride, when he dreamt up the bride, he dreamt up like she incarnates receptivity before God, right? Femininity is receptivity, which is not passivity, right? All of humanity, all of us, every creature, all creatures are receptive before God. We are receptive. We're in the posture of the bride. But the enemy came along and he, like, attacked us. He undermined that receptivity. I'm going to skip this. Dang it. I know, I know. I know. I know, I know. Ten seconds, ten seconds, please. Please, thank you.
So the enemy comes, he attacks us, he wants to rip apart this relationship. You guys know this story, of course, right? But God is not content to leave us in this place. He launches this rescue mission. The entire Old Testament is the rescue mission of the bridegroom coming in search of the bride. I will bring you back every covenant that God forms with humanity. Listen to this from Eucharistic Prayer 4. And when through disobedience humanity had lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the domain of death. For you came in mercy to the aid of all, so that those who seek might find you, and time and again, you offer them covenants. Listen to that, and like the Father's heart, time and again, I'm going to get you back, I'm going to win you back, I'm going to bring you back. You offer them covenants, and through the prophets, taught them to look forward to salvation. This is what's going on in the covenants. This is what God is doing. The covenant with Noah, then the covenant with Abram, the covenant with Moses and his people, the covenant with David. All of this, God is attempting to bring his bride back into the posture of openness, the posture of like, trust me. But humanity keeps saying no. So the prophets begin to dream of a new covenant. You hear things like this from Isaiah. As a young man marries a young virgin, so will your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice in you. The prophets are longing for new covenant fulfillment. They're looking for a perfect and, perfect and eternal covenant. Then you come to the Song of Songs. Oh, yes. Open to me. This is, the God. this is God. This is God. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Open to me. Right? Rabbi Akiba of the first century, he said, All of Scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. You see, there was a problem, right? Like, the problem of original sin is that the bride, the bride closed herself to the gift of the bridegroom. I don't trust you. I don't want to open myself to you. I don't trust your gift. She's clothed herself, closed herself. Who will open? Who will receive? Who will say yes? This is the whole thing. Biblically speaking, faith is the openness of the heart of the bride to the gift of the bridegroom. God's been knocking on the heart of Israel all the entire all the centuries of the covenants. Open to me. Open to me. Open to me. Who will open? Is there someone who will open? We see God's tender mercy slowly slowly wooing his bride until finally Israel flowers into the most perfect open vessel of longing. Open to me. My sister, my bride. The Annunciation, Bernard of Clairvaux, he said, like, it was as if all of creation was leaning in. What is she going to say? Will she say yes? Of course she says yes. Our Lady, right, pregnant with the Word. The Word is made flesh and dwells among us. The Church Fathers said that Mary's womb, they described it as the mystic bridal chamber. If you go to the Easter Vigil, you hear in the Exaltet, this night where things of heaven are wed to those of earth. Where did that happen? In her womb. Every time you go to Mass, it's as if you are inside Mary's womb again to behold the Annunciation. On the altar. Like the one all of our hearts are looking for has come for us. The Word made flesh. Jesus, who is the bridegroom, the bridegroom in his person, right? He's divinity and humanity married together. He's not a demigod. He's true God and true man. His first miracle. Where's the first miracle? What if he's a Cana? In the ancient Jewish world, the, the person who had the responsibility of providing the wine at the wedding was the bridegroom. This bridegroom at this wedding, I don't know what happened. He like, probably drank all the wine himself. I don't know. But like he screwed up. The one who actually provides the wine at the wedding is the bridegroom. Of all the miracles he could have done for his first miracle, he could have turned turtles into ponies. <laughs> that would have been cool. That's true. Don't limit the word. That's true. 
He, provi- he turns water into wine at a Jewish wedding feast. Right? He identifies himself as the bridegroom. Can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? Or the whole scene where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. We read that scene as a powerful encounter of mercy, but the Jews who would have read that scene, they would have read it as a nuptial proposal. Right? In the ancient Jewish world, you look at the prototype, you look at the Old Testament, woman at a well meets a foreign man <laughs> equals wedding. Where does Jacob meet his wife? At a well. Where does Moses meet his wife Zipporah? At a well. Right? Like, th- that whole scene, Like if you were a Jew, you're like, Oh, they're probably going to get married, those two. Because that's what happens. Right? Jesus says to her, you've been with five men. The one you're with right now, which is number what? Is not your husband. Who, who, who does that make Jesus? Biblically, the number of six is, is the number that represents what? Imperfection. The number seven represents perfection. Do you realize in Scripture, in, the, in, in, ancient, or in, in Hebrew, they didn't have a superlative tense. So to say something was the holiest, you would say it's the holy, holy, holy. Do you realize that's why the angels sing holy, holy, holy? There's no other way for them to say, God, you are the holiest. Why is Satan sick, sick, sick? You are the imperfectest. You're the most in rebellion. Here comes Jesus, number seven, right? The Last Supper. We, it's obviously a Passover scene, but to be betrothed in the ancient world... A young Jewish bridegroom would approach his Jewish bride-to-be and say, this is the cup of my covenant. That's what he's doing. He's betrothing himself. And on the cross, what he does with his words, he does in acting, he enacts with his body. At the culmination of his life, he cries out in a loud voice, and we hear it in English, it is finished. Tell Telestai in the Greek. When St. Jerome translated that into the Latin, he translated Jesus' final words as consummatum est. It is consummated. The wedding between heaven and earth is consummated. You have Jesus, the bridegroom, the new Adam, asleep in death as a soldier comes to pierce his side and outflows a river of blood and water, which the church fathers all saw as, sim- as symbols of baptism in the Eucharist, which are the constitutive elements of the bride. Just as the first Adam's bride is birthed from his side, the new Adam's bride is birthed from his side. Do you know that in the ancient world, this custom had grown up in the city of Jerusalem that during Passover, the, the rabbis would be chanting all day long, They'd start early in the morning. They'd be chanting the entire scriptures. And by the time it was about 12 o'clock, they would have reached the Song of Songs. Which means that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, echoing through the entire city, is the Song of Songs, the longing of the bride for her bridegroom. This is why we have the audacity to say that Good Friday is Good Friday. Because he wasn't simply murdered. He He offered himself... This is why St. Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. What does Paul mean by the great mystery? He means that God has married together two marriages, right? That in the beginning, the, the, the creation of man and woman, our flesh in the beginning, was a sign that was meant to point forward to the eternal Nuptials between Jesus and his church, the bride. This is the great mystery. The union of husbands and wives foreshadowed. Like John Paul II says that, that the mystery of redemption, redemption clothes itself in the spousal mystery. To be saved is to be in union with the bridegroom is to be loved deeply. Like, and all of this continues in our liturgical life. Like that gift, that moment, hasn't ceased. It's just now veiled. It's just veiled. 
Like the way that, like our entire liturgy, the entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and his church. The entire Christian life where the word becomes flesh, right? Most people don't see it. The chalice. Chalice comes from the Latin word calyx, right? Calyx is a reference to a very specific part of a flower. So the very base of a flower, that sort of green bulb thing that's beneath the petals, that's the calyx of the flower. So the calyx has a specific role that the calyx collects the dew. As the dew lands on the petals during the night, it falls down into the bottom of the calyx, which is essential for reproduction, for the pollinization, fertilization of the flowers. So what does the bride carry as she walks down the aisle? Flowers. Flowers. What is the primary ingredient in women's perfume? (laughs) What is our churches? What are our churches going to be decorated Easter morning? Flowers. Flowers. Have you ever wondered what a flower is? This is going to sound so bizarre. Flower... This is nature's most beautiful reproductive organ. It opens its petals to receive the pollination. Right? And the, like it's, it's, it's femininity. It's creation. It's all of everything that God has made. What opens the petals of the flower? The sun. The sun. Right? Is there, is there a reason perhaps why traditionally we worshipped facing the east? The direction of the rising sun. Here he comes. We're meant to open our hearts like a bridegroom who comes forth like the sun. Like that is that's who our Jesus is. So the chalice, especially here and like at my parish, the chalice is traditionally veiled at the start of Mass. Why? Because the chalice is the symbol of the bride. And who unveils the bride? The bridegroom. The bridegroom unveils the bride. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Pray over the Eucharistic elements. Make holy, therefore, these gifts we pray by sending down your Spirit upon them like the... (laughs) And then we remember in the Song of Songs, the bridegroom comes to the bride. Open to me, my sister, my bride. My head is drenched with dew. My hair with the dampness of the night. Like, this is, we're going to push even further. You guys can handle this. I've got a few more minutes. The, have you ever, what what was that? Have you ever stopped to think, what is it that we put upon the altar? Right, we put bread and wine. Where do we get bread? It comes from wheat. Crushed wheat flour, right? What is wheat? It's the endosperm of the plant. Where do we get wine? Grapes. grapes, crushed and fermented grape juice. What is a grape? It's the ovary of the vine. We take ovaries and sperm, nature's fertility, work of human hands. Like what you have given us, God, becomes the work of human hands. We offer nature's fertility on the altar. And then the Lord and giver of life comes upon these gifts and supernaturalizes them. Like the altar is not just an altar. It's not simply a place of sacrifice. It's the marriage bed. Right? That's why if you've been to St. Peter's, that huge canopy over the altar, the, 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 um, 
yeah, what's it called? The, the baldacchino. It's designed to look like a canopy bed. It's designed to look like the hoopa. That's what it is. You ever wonder why, I mean, like surrounding the altar at St. Peter's are all of these flowers and bees. Birds and bees, <laughs> ring a bell. Bees, nature's ultimate pollinator, right? Around the base of the altar of St. Peter's is a woman's face in four stages of labor as the bride is preparing to give birth to the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. Guys, I just, like, this is the lens. Like, like, and again, we got to be careful about how, like, you know, pearls before swine kind of a thing. People just might not be ready totally for all this kind of imagery. But this, this is the truth. This is the truth. This is the good news of the gospel. Right? Every time we come to Mass, every time we come to Mass, it's a wedding. There hidden in the Eucharist is the bridegroom. And just like every wedding, who comes walking down the aisle to meet him? A bride. The body of Christ. And notice the bride doesn't say, thank you. She opens to receive. She opens to receive. John Paul II. Oh, how cute is that? The word made flesh. John Paul II himself, he said that the Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Which is interesting because we have another sacrament called matrimony where you actually have a bridegroom and a bride. He says, no, 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 no. The Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. This is what makes sense of our masculinity and femininity. God has clothed the mystery of redemption in the spousal mystery, the great mystery. We do not merely want to see beauty, C.S. Lewis says, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. We might even add to eat it and to drink it. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but the le- all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Or better yet, it will get into us. Everything which your heart seeks, like the bridegroom, his love, Eros, it comes to you, hidden in the drama of that little host. I want to end by having us just pray and reflect, listening to this song. So, a uh, quick story. Um, back in 2010, I lived in Rome for five months um, as part of my seminary formation, and uh, my buddy and I, we took a trip to England, we went to London, we wandered into Westminster Cathedral for Mass, which is, um, Pope Benedict had just left there, he had just done the canonization for, uh, or the beatification of Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, and um, the Westminster Cathedral Choir is regarded as one of the greatest choirs on the planet, and while we were there, the choir sang this song, which was the first time I'd ever heard this, and it was the first time that music had ever pierced me so deeply that it just spontaneously, I just couldn't stop crying. Um, The song is called O Manu Mysterium, which means O Great Mystery. O Great Mystery. Like this is what we've been reflecting on this afternoon, that God in our humanity has revealed this great mystery. The Word made flesh to unite His flesh to our flesh, to divinize our flesh. We're going to end with this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.